Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome to Oh God What Now, the podcast that started it all with Doomsday Watch, Jam Tomorrow and the brand new paper cut springing forth from our loins. I'm Alex Andreu. This week, infamy, infamy, they've all got it in for me. Boris Johnson claims he's the victim of a witch hunt. We test his claim on the ducking stool. Also, the latest Donald Trump indictment is unsealed and it's worse than anyone thought. Or better. Or both. And the Telegraph Media Group is up for sale. Dare we hope for better or should we fear the worst? Let's meet the panel. Matt Green is a comedian and the best fake Tory on the interweb since that other one revealed he was a Yorkshireman with a mullet. Hello, Matt. Hello, how are you doing? (laughs) Matt, on Monday, news broke that Silvio Berlusconi has gone to the great Bunga Bunga party in the sky. Uh, Was he in some way at the vanguard of bad men realising that failure and immorality can be dressed up as entertainment? Is he the spiritual father of the toxic men we're discussing today? I think absolutely. I think without Berlusconi, we wouldn't have had Trump, we wouldn't have had Johnson. And I think it's just interesting to reflect that he's another populist leader who will be forever associated with parties, but much more exciting sounding parties than the one that Johnson was involved in, because we've got Bunga Bunga, Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll, and a cake in a committee room. It feels like that really shows the difference between Italy and the UK in terms of our political scandals. To be fair, we don't know what went on in the flat upstairs. That's very true. That could have been a Bunga Bunga party, you're right. Arthur Snell is the host of Doomsday Watch and the author of How Britain Broke the World. Hello, Arthur. Hello, Alex. Arthur, on Saturday... Volodymyr Zelensky finally confirmed that the long-awaited Ukraine pushback had begun. What is the early intelligence on how that is shaping up? Yeah, so I think at this stage, the Ukrainians are probing, trying to see where they might be able to make the most progress. So there seem to be about four kind of lines of advance. And in one in particular, as, as has been covered in the news, they've already recovered, I think, now four villages, places like Makarivka, and so that might well be uh, a really positive early sign of the Ukrainians, but they're only really getting to the main line of Russian defences. And so this is still very much a case of them trying to work out where it would be good for them, and then they'll try and pile a whole load of uh, men and material in on that particular line. But early signs, I think, are positive. Because the objective, as I understand it, is to find a weakness and sort of punch through to the sea in order to separate um, Odessa and the Crimean Peninsula from the rest of the Russian forces. Is that right? That's right. You've got this this sort of triangular sea between Crimea and and the far eastern bit of Ukraine called the Sea of Azov. And, and they want to get to there because then you can you can completely isolate Crimea and, and then circle back to the rest of uh, the Donbass, where the Russians, of course, have had some territory since 2014. And getting to the Sea of Azov would be an amazing achievement militarily. If you think about 
all the things they have against them, including the fact they still don't really have an air force. It's it's very un- unusual for any major modern army to operate without an air force in this kind of environment. So, I mean, you've, it's a it's very ambitious what they're trying to do. Thanks, Arthur. Now, our guest this week is Deputy Editor of Politico's London Playbook, the daily Bible for us Westminster watchers, Eleni Correa. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. Eleni, at a time of instant news, how do you explain the huge success of Politico's playbooks, which are essentially a series of very old-fashioned newsletters? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's a really good question. And, uh, my bosses, uh, Jack and Kate, who started Politico in the UK and sort of made it what it is, um, always tell the story of when they launched Playbook and they sort of asked the 50 most important people in Westminster, you know, do you think we need, no- we need another morning newsletter? And every one of them said no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I guess the thing about Playbook is that it's just, it, it's. I don't think there's any other newsletter quite like it in that the audience that we have in mind are the kind of the main decision makers, the main, the most powerful people in the country the uh, most powerful journalists you know the the cabinet ministers people in Downing Street people in uh, the Labour leader's office that's who the audience is Mm. Um, and you know when you read it the whole point of reading it if you're not in that world is to read what those people are reading and see what kind of things they're thinking about and what's uh, driving the day in Westminster yeah no it's uh, it's incredibly useful and I have to confess a certain weakness for the very cheeky titles um, some days because you do like your puns and I do appreciate that first thing in the morning. But that's part of the thing. It's, you know, it's meant to make everything fun. It's meant to make politics fun. I mean, I guess British politics is already... <laughs> we, yes. don't, we don't the need s- to add more colour yeah. to British the politics. The fun but. of the swirling abyss <laughs> that is Westminster. Now, in the last few days, there has been just gobsmacking story after gobsmacking story. For someone whose job it is essentially to summarise developments in a sort of digest and predict what's ahead. Do you ever just scream too much news and just put your laptop in the freezer and get the vodka from out of there? And just go <laughs> I never quite got to that <laughs> that stage. Getting kind of a tub of ice cream out, sure, and like just <laughs> hoping that powers you through. I get well. I mean, yes. I think it's been. I mean, I haven't been a journalist for that long. I'm a political journalist. I less than five years. Um, the whole time that I've been doing it, it's been. In, you know, absolute yeah, insane chaos. amount of news. Yeah. So, you know, I'm kind of used to it in that sense. I guess the people who have been around for 20 years, if you speak to them, they always say, you know, this is just not normal. This is, it's just um, the things that have happened since the Brexit referendum really are, it just is unprecedented in the yeah. chaos we've seen. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Now, before we get started, a couple of important messages for our dedicated listeners. One, don't miss our fabulous new podcast, Paper Cuts, the modern newspaper review for today's busy listener. On Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, Miranda Sawyer and special guests look at the absolute state of the fourth estate, pulling out the biggest, weirdest and occasionally most brilliant stories from our national newspapers. Search Paper Cuts on your favourite podcast app now. And two, the next podcaster's question time is coming on Zoom for Patreon backers. This time it's Dorian Linsky answering your questions on Thursday, 29th of June, if he comes home from Glastonbury. Search Patreon, oh God, what now, to sign up as a supporter and get access to the Zoom, as well as all our goodies from the House of Podmasters. Now, on Friday, 
a medium-sized C-quality essay was published by Boris Johnson on his favourite subject, Boris Johnson. It explained why he had decided to stop serving his constituents as an MP. Boy, they will feel that, making him the first MP on record to resign with effect from three years ago. In a statement displaying the sort of good grace that one might expect from a losing come-dine-with-me contestant, Johnson accused Prime Minister Sunak, the Common Standards Committee, Sue Gray, Harriet Harman, the establishment, Remainers, the Deep State, George Soros, Bill Gates and his local fishmonger of a stitch-up. And just like that, to quote Kaiser Schoze, he was gone. But is he ever really gone? Eleni, let's look at events in turn, because this is complicated, okay? So we'll take it in stages. The first big sign that something was afoot was Nadine Dorries resigning on Friday. Then, finally, Johnson's resignation's honours list was published. Mm -hmm. And even before any of what happened next, even before that extraordinary letter, we had claim and counterclaim on this with a Johnson camp claiming that Sunak had blocked several names and number 10 denying any such interference. What do you think actually happened behind the scenes? Well, I mean, you know, as you say, there's so much that's happened here. It's it's and it's very difficult really to pinpoint. It's very difficult to pinpoint exactly um, or to get a kind of, um, you know, dispassionate narrative because we are relying on what number 10 is saying on the one hand and what Boris and his team are saying on the other hand. I mean, what we do know, first of all, I guess the kind of crux of all of this is that there was a meeting between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak that nobody knew about that had happened. Um, you know, number 10 had said that they, that they had called off a meeting between them and then one went ahead anyway a little while after that. Mm. Um, and at that meeting, you know, it was a kind of attempt to uh, uh, to stop hostilities, really, to end hostilities between them, find some kind of um, way uh, through which the kind of open war that's going on between the current PM and the open a former PM could end. Um, and the the kind of most controversial bit of that was that Boris Johnson brought up his honours list mm-hmm. um, that he, you know, the people that he wanted to yeah give gongs to really. Um, that has been uh, the subject of, of stories for a long time. It's very controversial. You know, if you look at the list, it's really just um, people that he, his closest allies, his friends that he was rewarding um, for uh, their work when he was prime minister. And some pretty surprising names. <laughs> I mean, imagine the ones that were left off. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> oh I think the original. Because we list... don't know, right? Because no, no. Uh, apparently, Holak, which is the House of Lords Appointments Commission, yeah. um, rejected eight out of the fifteen names. Yes, and we don't know who those eight were. No, I think. Uh, I mean, I think we know. We know Nadine Dorries was one of them. Yes, I don't think she hid her disappointment <laughs> quite as fully as she could have. No, no, indeed. Um, and yes, as you say, about half are rejected. It turns, um, to be fair, that apparently that is a regular thing. Like, uh, a, 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 quite a large number of uh, prime ministers' names are rejected. And mm. uh, even before, actually, those names got to Hol- uh, Holak, though, there was a, a much longer list of names um, that Johnson had to trim down himself. Mm. Um, I mean, he wanted his, it's been reported, the Times reported, 30. that he wanted his dad to be, um, yeah. yeah, to get a peerage, I think. It was 30 at the first count, I yeah, remember when I, the first draft was around. Yes. There were yeah. various people briefing that it was 30 names for peerages. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't tell you, you know, this um, the, what, the original iterations, like and the various iterations that we've gone through since his resignation, which is now almost a year ago. You will tell us tomorrow or the day <laughs> after because it's the sort of thing 
that will leak <laughs> without a doubt. Um, now, some suggested that this was all linked to the ongoing row with a COVID inquiry about Johnson's WhatsApps, notebooks and diary, that that had become somehow embroiled and that Sunak had done some sort of deal with Johnson that he then backpedaled on. Is there a connection, do you think, or are these two completely separate arguments just unfolding in parallel? I, I think none of this is going to be completely separate. It's all linked. I mean, in the sense, I don't think um, there's no direct link between those subject matters, but it's the political link in that, you know, Boris Johnson is causing a lot of trouble for the government and Rishi Sunak, and he sucks all the you know political oxygen out, the news agenda. He, he's able to drive the news agenda every day. Mm. Um, you know, he just has that um, profile, really. And, and, and you know, the, this kind of idea, which... Um, re- now after his resignation is fading, this idea that he could come back was part of that, that he could kind of, you know, lead a rebellion within the commons. Mm. Um, that that now is fading because he's resigning and that is good for the government. But yes, I think, um, I think the fact that there was this row with Boris Johnson's WhatsApps and him very actively uh, kind of feeding that row and, and accusing the government of hiding those WhatsApp mm. messages, not wanting to submit the WhatsApp messages, um, claiming that he himself was very happy to submit all this material um, was a big problem from Downing Street. And, you know, that that is what was... There was a bit of horse trading, we think. Abs- yes, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, that's, that's why this meeting happened, partly, you know, just to try and kind of move past this um, civil war. Um, but yeah, what happened? Uh, what happened at that meeting is really the the source of all this entire huge yeah. fallout. Now, Arthur, moving forward on the timeline, on Friday afternoon came that extraordinary thousand plus word letter from Johnson that hit Westminster like chain lightning. He claimed that he was bewildered and appalled to be anti-democratically forced out of Parliament by a a tiny handful of people. Those are quotes. Is there any interpretation of events that supports that take? I'm asking you to be as kind (laughs) to the Johnson team as you possibly could. Um, Well, given given that he resigned, I suppose he could say that he forced himself out and he's a tiny group of people because he's one man. But that, I think that's the best you can do. Um, uh, back in the real world, if you think about what happened, this, this is this is all you know because he lied to Parliament, which is something you're not supposed to do, and it's it represents the equivalent sort of gross misconduct in any other job, and the the number of things that he gets to happen before he gets sacked for gross misconduct, which is he has an extensive hearing where he gets the best lawyer in the country paid for by the taxpayer, the the committee then makes a determination on which parliament votes so again you know it's it's not it's not a final thing and then and then if that goes through there could be a recall petition in his constituency so there are so many layers of um sort of protection for his own dishonesty that the idea he's been forced out is is bizarre you know if if he had the the courage to go through with it he'd be an mp for months and months before he had to leave assuming he did leave presumably the calculation must have been that there was a reasonable chance he would lose in front of all those fora, right? Yeah, I, I think it, I imagine it's, it's a bit simpler than that, that he, he probably thought, I don't like scrutiny. And, you know, this report will emerge and no doubt will, will lay out in very clear terms how much he lied to the House. And of course, everyone knows he's a liar, but it sort of comes from a formal, uh, um, you know, source. So So it's hard to to ignore. And then, of course, 
the whole debate around any recall or any by-election will be all about this man's a liar. Does he deserve to be in Parliament? So, so this way he just gets to he gets to flounce the the people who still who still take him seriously, which I, I must say are it must be a tiny group. Um, they can read his long essays, which I, which I've got to say, he read that Friday night essay read like he'd had a, at least a bottle of wine before he wrote it. It was this sort of rambling, angry, you know, it, it, it was not a coherent case. His detractors claim he's being a coward, jumping rather than facing his Commons colleagues and then his constituents. His supporters claim that he's being very brave and will be back. Do you think he will be back? I actually don't. I think that... Um, I mean, obviously, this is his second stint as an MP with, with in between those two things, Mayor of London. Um, but I don't think he'll be back. I, I don't buy this idea that he wants to be leader of the opposition, which is a really thankless task, uh, really hard work. Um, I don't see how he's going to get a seat to run in for the next election. Um, and he's making all these millions outside Parliament. And, and once he's out of Parliament, he doesn't actually have to disclose the details of that. So he can make probably more millions with more you know, or with less um, uh, credible clients, yes, and less scrutiny. So so I, I, I can't see much downside for him. I mean, obviously, he would like to go down as a great prime minister and statues erected to him. But he's probably coming to terms with the fact that that is just simply not on the cards anymore. So, so getting filthy rich is, is a sort of second best, isn't it? Yes, um, I think ironic statues is all you can hope for <laughs> right. at this stage. Um, Matt, the briefings on the day from the Johnson camp seem to hint strongly that there were many more resignations to come, staggered in order to cause maximum damage. Only one such resignation came, Nigel Evans, Nadine Doris having already resigned, which I just love, you know, that they're, they're having this conversation about right so you know if you if I resign are you too ready to jump with me before he's finished the sentence Nadine Doris is already out the window going ah (laughs) (laughs) Um, but nothing came after that do you think this was bullshit from the off did Johnson overestimate his support from within the party or was he stitched up by people who promised to jump with him then didn't. What, what's your spidey sense telling you? Well, I think I think also I think it was, was it Nigel Adams rather than Nigel Evans. Oh I, yes, did I say Nigel? Uh, you did, but I think that's Sorry. fine. I think we should leave that in because it shows that he's <laughs> such a small character that we're all like Nigel Evans. I don't. Know, I can't remember. It's an N word. Oh, right. yeah. um, Nigel Nick. Nigel. Nigel. Yeah. Um, not the Nigel we're all thinking about, yeah. but the other the other Nigel. Yeah, I don't. Know. I find it funny. I feel like someone mentioned on um, Twitter that Johnson was behaving a bit like David Brent, and I thought that's exactly it. When he goes in and says, "Well, if you fire me, these guys, <laughs> these guys are going to mutiny," and everyone's going, uh, "That's fine. so true." And um, and I feel like that he, he's he's the kind of guy who sort of maybe pushes up someone in the pub and goes, "Right, if, if you know," he's sort of threatening somebody, and all of his friends are just sort of melting away into the background because they were never really his friends; they were his loyal acolytes as long as he was someone who could do something for them and as long as he could provide you know um honors and whatever but now the even the honors list has been published and mm. not all of them are on it who wanted to be so what's what's in it for what's them? the currency yeah he's not trading anything you're right uh it, it was extraordinary today monday as we record jake berry uh, gave an interview to sky news in which i mean jake berry for listeners is very much S- the, sir jake berry Yes, 
um, is very much really the the chief of the centurion guard for Johnson, right? Mm-hmm. They don't come more loyal than that. And he he was asked about the letter, and he said, "Oh, I haven't read it." That was amazing. Um, At the end of the interview, he did this long interview. Which and then was, walking away. Sort of walking away, that classic sort of interview where you know they're waiting exactly as long as they want to. And he said, he said sort of simultaneously that the establishment brought down Johnson, which I, I guess we might talk about later, but also that he was a big fan of Rishi Sunak and Rishi Sunak was his great friend that he was looking forward to. And then right at the end they said, what about the resignation ledger? He went, oh, I didn't read it. I mean, <laughs> really? <laughs> That's, that, I thought, mm, I think you did read it. Then on Sunday, Nigel Farage, the other Nigel, issued a pretty open invitation to Johnson to join forces with him. Do you think a deal could be struck between two such massive egos? I think there could be a deal struck for a show. I think they could do the Boris and Nigel show. That would sell out, you know, um, beer halls all across the country. Podcast. Yeah, exactly. Um, maybe their own version of Waiting for Godot. I don't know. There's, there's all sorts of options there. But the question always would then be, who is the headliner? Because I think Nigel Farage was quite happy to let Donald Trump take the, the headline yeah. spot in America. But I think over here, I think he would, you know, there would be an element of balance of like, well, am I the headliner? Are you the headliner? I think there would, yeah, I don't think the egos would work for a second. I think he knows that Boris is a sort of powerful weapon in the Brexit debate, mm. but that's kind of yesterday's news now. So I, I just don't think he... I was thinking about this on the train over and I thought this is one of those weird things where there's a reputational risk to both of them, very strangely. <laughs> like, Nigel Farage will feel that his reputation might be tarnished by association to Johnson and vice versa. Because mm. um, Nigel Farage has never been near actual power. Yeah. And that's his power, is that he's always the one who says, well, I, if only I was the one who was given the power, I could do stuff. And yeah, and, and he's been sort of very um, upset about how they dealt with Brexit and all that sort of thing. And Which is unusual. He's usually a really sort of easygoing He's guy. a very sunshiny guy. But they, but they were on different camps and during the referendum as well. Mm. They were on different campaigns, leave, leave.eu and Vote Leave. So, yeah. you, know, they've, you know, they've never managed to... No, that's to, true. That's you know, they've true. got too many differences. And really. Farage actually criticised his oven-ready deal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Eleni... The immediate result is that there will be three by-elections in England. Mm -hmm. Labour says it is going for all three of them. Mm -hmm. But what are its prospects? Might we see an informal little carve-up and non-aggression pact with the Lib Dems, do we think? I think it it seems very likely um, because that's what happened in a succession of recent by-elections. I mean, Tivich and Honiton, I think, was one. um, And um, Owen Patterson's seat, North Shropshire. We saw either Labour or the Lib Dems in various instances kind of hold back. They will feel a candidate um, mm. because, you know, they feel a candidate in every seat, particularly Labour as the kind of, you know, the op- main opposition party. But there, are, uh, we've seen in s- several instances these non-aggression pacts which have allowed one or the other party to take those seats. And I think we'll get something very similar here. Mm. Um, I mean, Labour's uh, gunning for Boris Johnson's seat, yeah. in South Ryslip. Uh, but, for example, Nadine Dorries' seat in Med- Bedfordshire has those rural characteristics um, that l- the Lib Dems think that they can go for. Mm even though Labour is mm. currently in the second place in that scene. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure about uh, um, Selby, which is the third by-election. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, I think we will have a very similar, because that's in the best interest of both parties, right? And it'll, if, be, if, it'll be interesting to see if they, they do that successfully, because I think every such successful mini-pact 
sort of encourages them to to do something bigger for the general election, I think. You know, something that proves to be of mutual benefit. Basically. Absolutely, without needing to kind of go into formal yeah. agreements. Um, and it's, you know, with the by-elections, everyone the Tories lose is a huge blow to them. It makes it look like, you know, they're on the course to lose the election. And then in a general election, you know, that we, we definitely, I mean, we've had lots of chatter already about the prospect of a coalition or at least a kind of informal agreement between Labour and the Lib Dems if they can't, if Labour can't quite form a majority on its own. Um, and mm. I think there's, you know, that's definitely something that's on the cards and they can um uh, and you know it's not even just of on the um on the party's behalf uh, voters themselves ta- vote tactically in these mm-hmm. you know they'll be aware you know which which one they should go for if they want to vote against the tories like we've yeah, seen it becomes clear people, quite quickly yeah. doesn't it this could all be moot though because i've just seen breaking news on twitter that lawrence fox is running in boris johnson's old seat so <laughs> So yeah. Labour will definitely well, take that. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, um, there you go. Um, hooray. <laughs> um, then on Sunday afternoon, Nicola Sturgeon was arrested, questioned and released without charge. I mean, let's put that story in brackets because the investigation of S&P finances to which it relates is effectively sub So we mustn't comment. But let's talk about the politics around it. Did this news basically complete a perfect weekend for Labour? especially considering there is a fourth um, pretty competitive by-election in Scotland coming up. Absolutely. Uh, Margaret Ferrier's Yes, seat. in her old seat, um, which, uh, yeah, Labour will be hoping to win. I mean, exactly. It's like, it, what bigger gift could Keir Starmer possibly hope for? And, I mean, on top of that, Labour had announced a pretty, you know, significant U-turn on one of its policies. I know, green the investment, Green Plan. Yeah. On the Friday morning, and then that was blown out of the water by <laughs> everything. So, you know, it, it was just, it, it couldn't have gone better for them, really. And, yeah, mm. absolutely. Uh, the the SNP's kind of crisis in Scotland just puts them in a much better position there. Might give that might give them the seats that they need to tip them over the line for majority. In mm. you know potentially if if a kind of similar polling, um, uh, if the current polls are borne out yeah, in yeah. an election, um, so yes, it's just incredible, um, incredible luck for them. Arthur, fast forward to Monday morning. And Sunak has come out fighting, telling journalists that Johnson asked him to do the wrong thing. He refused, and whoever doesn't like that, tough. He has been widely applauded. But is there more to this? Um, Johnson responded just before we recorded, saying this is rubbish. And it just occurs to me that unless we see the names that were rejected, Sunak may well have had an agenda in this, in that he didn't want loads of by-elections. Yeah, I mean, I think that there was this slightly odd thing where basically the, the Johnson, as I understand it, the Johnson camp, their idea was that he could nominate his friends, people like Nadine Dorries, for peerages, but it was a nomination that would sort of sit on a, on a shelf ready until the next election so they wouldn't have to have by-elections. And, and basically, Sunak said, well, that's not how HOLAC works, and so it's not an option. And, and, and then this, you know, everything fell apart from there. But of course, there are not all of those eight were, were, were MPs who, who would trigger by-elections. You know, there was widely rumoured that there was David Ross, who's this sort of billionaire guy behind Carphone Car Warehouse, other, other people in the sort of Johnson um, cinematic universe. So it, it seems like um, ultimately, I just wonder whether Sunak had a, had a sudden moment where he realised 
it's probably in his interest to dig his heels in and look like he's standing up to Boris Johnson. And he's probably seen the same surveys we've all seen, that Johnson just isn't popular anymore. It's only really journalists and a, a small subset of journalists uh, not the excellent journalists on this podcast who who still believe that that he's this somehow this this amazing figure who can you know unite everyone behind him. Mm. Where I, th- I feel we're definitely in phase four of the Tory cinematic <laughs> universe, all out war. Um, yes, <laughs> Matt. The Daily Mail published an editorial in which it likened Johnson to Thatcher and called him a tiger brought down by nibbling mice. What is your assessment of his legacy? Uh, I think if he's a tiger, then he's the tiger who came to tea. (laughs) (laughs) He came along, just ate up all of our attention and then left never to be seen again, I hope. Um, But the thing that struck me about that piece was not just that it was entirely insane, which it was, but also that he's always been compared to other leaders who did stuff. So there's Thatcher, there's Churchill, but he's this sort of, he's become almost this blank slate for the, the the kind of Tory right to project their ideas. He could have been the next that he could have been the next Churchill, mm. but he doesn't share any of the qualities of those people. That he's just someone who came along at the right time and happened to be entertaining, and they thought he would sort of he would work, and he did. He did do what they wanted. He got Brexit through and all that sort of stuff. But in the end, he was brought down by a conspiracy. But it was a conspiracy of his own making. It was a conspiracy of his laziness, his arrogance, and this belief that the rules don't apply to him. Yes, I mean, it's extraordinary to think that he was elected with an 80-seat majority three and a half years ago. Um, I was looking at the aggregate poll on the political website, which is very good. By March 2020, the Tories were in 51% in the aggregate polls, a full 22 points ahead of Labour. Mm. I mean, he seemed unassailable. Is there any truth to his allies' claim that he was punished for Brexit? Because I, I have to say, something in me did twinge a little bit when I heard that claim. I I thought it's probably fair enough, actually, that everyone has gone super hard. I'm not saying it was unfair. It was perfectly fair to punish him for Brexit. I think maybe he's been punished for Brexit, but not by anybody in particular, just by the fact that Brexit was almost like a Pandora's box situation. When you open it, you curse yourself. And that's what happened with him, that he never really thought Brexit would happen, as we've all talked about before. And then when it did happen, he didn't know how to deal with it. And it's almost like Brexit is this sort of curse that has cursed him and the Tory party and more widely the UK in general. Um, And we've been sort of cursed to deal with it forevermore, you know. On the Brexit angle, it's worth noting that on the privilege... Privileges Committee, which, of course, has a majority of Conservative members. Um, one of the most senior and probably influential members of that committee is Bernard Jenkin, who is one of the original uh, sort of Brexit warriors, you know, was into Brexit before it was fashionable. Um, so I, I, I think I think in a way that, that it, you know, Boris will spin this idea that, you know, it was it was the woke Remainer blob elite, whatever nonsense that, that brought him down. But you've got people who are definitely don't conform to that description who who are involved. And I have to say, watching the watching the hearing of the committee, it was Bernard Jenkin actually who struck the most fatal blows in that mm-hmm. um, evidence session. And and so this leads me perfectly to my last question for you, Lenny, because. I was surprised that Johnson picked on Harriet Harman so directly Mm. and brought up Sue Gray again. Mm. So I couldn't help 
but think on that Lewis Goodall scoop. He did an interview with Alicia Kearns, and she said that of the 20 MPs who met to discuss Partygate back then, mm. um, only the two women that were in that group were targeted, mm. and that that the brief went out from Boris Johnson's office that one was having an affair, which mm. was a lie, right. and that Alicia Kearns was a, a bad mother. Oh, the, that was a briefing that went, and I see them concentrate on Sue Gray and um, and on Harriet Harman rather than say Bernard Jenkins. Mm. And I think is it a coincidence that they always go for these powerful professional older women? I think really that what he's doing there is appealing to his base in in the attacking the Labour Party, right? In in kind of spinning this narrative that he is being undermined and taken out by the Labour Party and this is all the Labour plot. This mm. was something that was in the cards back when Sue Gray investigated Partygate in her report. Um, I think that just plays well with, with his subset of MP uh, supporters, which is relatively small, and the kind of Tory members as well. And it's linked to his decision to stand down. I mean, he's he just wants to retain this kind of image of himself as a winner, mm, um, as mm. a real kind of somebody who always wins. Um, so he wouldn't want to stand in a by-election because there is a real... Yes, absolutely. Uh, and by uh, by blaming all of this on Labour, on, on, on really significant Labour figures like Harriet Harman and now Sue Gray, who's now joined the Labour mm. Party, um, he he it adds to that, you know, he's such a, he's such a proven winner. He's such a um, good politician such an asset to the Tory that's party. That's the only that, way they could bring him down. Uh, yes, that the Labour Party is always sort of trying to shady take him down. Conspiracy, right? That you know, that ex- which is very Trumpian. Uh, well, you know, the, the, and there's similarities, there's differences between them, but yes, yeah. there is, there's, there's definitely, you know, a, an, an element of it to, of that politics going on where he's, where it just adds to this image um, that he wants to project um, and make it look like the Labour Party wants him out because that's the only way they can win. You know, that, that they think they can. Be Beat Rishi Sunak, mm. but they, that they think they might not be able to beat Boris Johnson. They, no, yeah, I, I agree, and I think the central difference is that I think Trump believes mm. his own legend, mm. while I think Johnson is plagued by self-doubt. Mm. I think Johnson knows that he's the one that destroyed the position he had. And I don't think Trump knows that. Yeah, but I think that's, that's a good point in that, you know, Boris, as, as, we, as we've touched upon, won an ATC majority. He was so ahead in the polls. You know, it felt like, I mean, I remember meeting people just after the election, meet Tory MPs, meet Labour MPs. They would all say, you know, Boris Johnson is going to win a second term. That they were was, talking about the third absolutely. term. I mean, they were talking about 10, ten yes. years in the wilderness for Labour, etc. It was an amazingly successful election campaign for various reasons. I mean, Brexit for because of Jeremy Corbyn and all sorts of other things. Um, and he squandered, and you know, absolutely, he squandered a lot of that himself by the way that the government was run while he was Prime Minister. So there was chaos in Downing Street. There was constant infighting, you know. No, and he, as ultimately the person responsible, never quite, you know, kind of stamped his foot mm. on all of that, and that that ended up bringing him down. So yeah, you know, sometimes this, your strength can be your biggest weakness, and yeah. Now, in other schadenfreude-delicious news, Donald Trump has been indicted 
And on Friday, that indictment was unsealed and everyone got to see the charges and some of the evidence. And many of the people who had rushed to hitch their wagon to the orange gas giant went strangely quiet because this wasn't a couple of documents that he just forgot in his briefcase. This was boxes and boxes and boxes of top secret stuff, as in must protect at all costs stuff stacked in his office, in his pool house, in his tanning booth, in his weird shower room with a massive chandelier, in my book, a crime grievous enough to see him sent down for life and which he shifted from place to place like an obsessed removals company in an attempt to hide them, even from his own lawyers, and which he admits on tape he shouldn't have and shouldn't be showing to anyone, even as he shows them to people. Mm -hmm. Arthur, what is in this indictment is by any stretch extraordinary. As a former diplomat, what caught your eye? Uh, well, I, I think a few things stick out. I mean, one is having obviously dealt with lots of American um, officials, diplomats over the years. There is a culture in America of taking this classification stuff incredibly seriously. And there's quite often, um, you know, prosecutions of, of, of unknown, you know, lower level people. I'm sure he never thinks the law applies to him, but he must at least have been aware of that context that he was in. But I guess there was, you know, the fact that there were nuclear secrets. So there were there were secrets about the nuclear capabilities of another country. I wonder if that's Israel, because Trump Trump has come very close to Saudis, um, and you know, through Jared Kushner has has a financial interest there. I just wonder whether he he saw a, a potential trade where he had information on Israeli nuclear capabilities, which he might at some point, um, you know. Sort of whisper mm. a few things. I mean, that's a, a pretty, that's a but. pretty big deal, right? Uh, oh yeah. I mean, I mean, the, I mean, this the is... country in question is is, is speculation, yes. but it is in the indictment that that the papers included yes. military secrets of yes. allies, yes. which I would imagine is a pretty red line in diplomatic circles. Like, exactly. Like you have to be really careful with the intelligence you have <laughs> oh, yeah. of yeah, other I'm... people. It's. I mean, it's. It. Yeah. If if it was anybody else, you would go to a supermax jail for decades. And and there are case studies. You know, there's a guy called Robert Hansen who just died in in custody, and he had been spying for the Russians. Was discovered in in the late nineties or maybe the early two thousands. Been in jail ever since. Now, I don't think it's at all likely that Trump will will go to jail, and certainly not for a long time. But um, this is a crime at the sort of extreme end of serious, basically. Yeah. Now, uh, he's due to be in court in Miami on Tuesday. What should we expect, do, do you think? Well, uh, he doesn't seem to have a very good relationship with his lawyers. Um, and, and that's problematic. <laughs> he sacked two of them Indeed. Uh, on Friday, didn't he? And, 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 and another one of his legal team is basically has, has been the main source of the evidence against him, albeit uh, sort of under duress. Uh, having said all of that, this case is in front of a very pro-Trump judge, a, a judge that um, nearly managed, who was appointed by Trump and, and nearly managed to get this whole thing squashed earlier on in the story. Um, so I, it's it's hard to know what to make of that. And of course, the, the US wheels of justice turn quite slowly. So it might be a fairly sort of administrative hearing at that stage. But of course, what we can expect around the edges are are the nut jobs who support him? You know the the sort of diehard Trumpists who are who are effectively a, a religious cult now, and so of course they, they won't be interested in the facts. They'll just be devastated that their cult leader is is being um, you know indicted in this way. We are devastated for them. Um, yeah. 
Matt, someone looking at, you know, Putin being pummeled in the Ukraine and um, Johnson and Trump and this morning Berlusconi dying, someone sent me a WhatsApp saying it's like someone threw the one ring into the volcano without telling anyone. Um, Does this confluence of events nevertheless begin to feel, even if it is just a coincidence of things, does it begin to feel like a sea change, is there a sense that in a in a well set up democracy, scrutiny eventually catches up with you? I'd love to think so, although I think I'm probably quite pessimistic about that because of the fact that we're dealing with the United States and the fact that Arthur said, you know, this is a Trump appointed judge who's quite pro Trump, just sort of says it all really that the justice system is so politicised there mm. that even though there have been moments where judges have done things that we would have. Uh, been quite surprised by it. it feels like there's always the chance that at some point at any point one of these judges will come along and just squash it or say that's not relevant or whatever and it feels like he could just get away and it feels like at the moment we're just i just can't help feeling all the time that in the world we're just the margins are so thin mm. between it feels like basically every time there's an election or anything like that the, the world keeps tossing a coin which has on one side sort of things are sort of okay and on the other side things are absolutely terrible and we keep tossing that coin every time and there are loads of people who really wanted to come down on absolutely terrible and that's what really worries me yeah that is worrying um trump says he wants a speedy vindication but legal experts are saying his best strategy is to try and delay proceedings as much as possible in the hope of getting the republican nomination getting elected Mm. we know that there is a part of the trump base to whom nothing matters but do you think it is conceivable that the Republican Party at large will pick someone with such grievous charges hanging over them and then the American public will vote them into office? Well, I think the first part, absolutely, the Republican Party might vote for him again because he doesn't need that many more people on his side for to, for the nomination to almost be a lock. And they believe everything is a conspiracy anyway. And this just proves that the government's against him, just like the government's against everybody. Um, It almost makes me feel that maybe Trump might have deliberately broken these laws in order to be put in legal jeopardy in order to then use that as a political tactic. It's I think that's too clever for him, but it feels like he could well have done that when he said he could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and and his votes would Mm. go up. I think he has learned that is absolutely true. Mm. And if he... Most people would be embarrassed or upset about this, but but not him. He's quite happy about it. Eleni, if that came to pass, Mm. how would it be resolved? Does democratic will override everything else? It's not like people don't know what they're getting with Trump, right? So ultimately, provided the election is free and fair, doesn't the American public have a right to choose a criminal? As their president, I mean, I guess well under the democratic system, I suppose yes. And the thing, the thing is, I, I think I'm right to say that under the American Constitution, you could actually be elected from jail. So yeah. if you know, he there, could, so that is literally pos- nothing. It's possible, yeah. and that, under that system, you know, that's the way the system works. Uh, I'm not sure that would be possible in the UK, um, but it's I've you know open. Who question. knows? <laughs> <laughs> or in other countries, but you know, that, and that is extraordinary. I guess the thing is, um, the more this, you know, the, it's just the charges that he faces are extraordinary are extremely serious as we've, as we've discussed it might be that um, the kind of Republican grassroots are you know and so many of uh, people in that um, whatever you throw at them they'll still support him but I think it does turn off sort of the median American mm, voter mm. I feel you know if you look at the polling he's just less popular than he was when he won um, what, you know back when he won 
So th- that's the question. So maybe they flip. Maybe they just stay at home. But it yeah, does, does it something mean that actually softer. he's just less likely to? You know, he might win the nomination, but he's less likely to win the eventual election because um, people will, you know, that that base that is behind him is is relatively. Um, limited. I don't know. Mm. It will. It, 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 this. It also feels to me, though, that the key is Biden, really, because B- Biden is doing, I think, a pretty good job. But he's eighty years old, and he looks like he might not be there for much longer. Who knows? And so it feels like the Democrats don't have a very plausible choice to replace him, or even as a vice president, Kamala Harris hasn't been particularly popular. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I would, I agree that I don't think the general electorate would vote for Trump. If he's up against Biden, but if something happened to Biden, you know, all bets are off. I mm. confess, I am so soft team Buttigieg. <laughs> um, now, Eleni, you noted on Friday's playbook that Sunak chose not to meet Trump in mm. his recent trip stateside. Mm. Is that significant? Do you think? Uh, I think it probably was. Um, it was a kind of um, a signal to Biden as well that you mm. know he's that mm. Sunak is on that. So it, especially because in the states they equate Boris Johnson with Trump. You know they really yeah. think that Boris Johnson is a Trumpian phenomenon in the UK. You know, I think it's more complicated than that for sure. But there, the, the, for them, that's and obviously there is they have some similarities. And Brexit was a kind of real uh, thing that they could agree on. As Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak has really managed to improve relations with Biden because um, he's just he's done a lot towards that, you know, the Windsor framework to kind of improve relations with the EU and improve kind of the trade friction that we've yeah, yeah. seen in Northern Ireland. I he think it's bas- all part of that. He's basically working at... He's basically working at reintroducing the UK in the international community as a sort of sane, reliable. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Yes. And, you know, he sees it that way. And he was embarrassed by how uh, the UK's reputation was Mm. um, trashed amongst various major powers in the last few years. And he's he's been very consciously trying to repair that. And meeting Trump would have been, I think, you know, the Biden White House would have seen that as a little bit. hmm, Okay, Um, I think definitely a choice not to meet him was something was a kind of a diplomatic move there and mm. a kind of a, a show of, of, of kind of solidarity almost, perhaps. Arthur, final question. Might a Trump presidency be better for the UK? I mean, purely from a selfish national point of view, he is, after all, a fan of Brexit. He's more open to a trade deal. He is more in tune, I guess, with the, with the Pacific tilt, with the Anglosphere stuff. Um, He's more hostile to the EU. So is there a school of thought that sees Trump being restored to the White House as actually quite a good thing for the uh, United Kingdom? Um, I I mean, you could follow the argument. And I think Jacob Rees-Mogg has has said it would be good for the UK. And and whether or not that that, um, endorses the case, I'm not sure. Uh, I guess it's certainly good for right-wing politicians in the UK. You know, having having, for example, having a, a President Trump disrupt the UK's relationship with the EU isn't good for the UK, really, is it? You know, mm. he, even if even if he will pretend that he's he's our best friend and all the rest of it. And the thing with the trade deal, um, you know, very little or no progress was made on the famous transatlantic trade deal when Trump was president, because after all, he's not somebody who could bear to even risk looking like he'd given a, an easy deal to the to the limeys, you know. So I, I, I think it's one of those things that, that you could sort of make the argument, but in real life, 
you you'd, you've had this very unpredictable president if he was on his second term completely kind of unchained uh unmoored not getting very old himself i mean he's only a couple of years younger than biden i think it would it would be catastrophic for the uk as it would for the rest of the world Last week, Lloyd's Banking Group seized control of Telegraph Media Group, who published The Telegraph and The Spectator after debts piled up on the holding company. Now, for all the hard-working Telegraph columnists like Charles Moore, Alison Pearson, David Frost and Alistair Heath, whose careers are at risk, may I ask for a moment of silence, please? That's enough, I think. The Telegraph <laughs> will sadly not cease to be, despite the big holes in its owner's pockets, but how did a former newspaper of record fall on such hard times. Arthur, maybe I'm still buzzing from succession, but the tale does sound familiar. The Barclay brothers, sons of the late Sir David Barclay, were kicked off the board after deaths from 2008, finally proved insurmountable. Was Jesse Armstrong taking notes from more families than the Murdochs, do you think? Well, he he probably was. I heard a really interesting interview with him where he was talking about how he he sort of dug quite deep into the kind of financial uh, press because he felt that actually succession type stories are buried everywhere in in the pages of the sort of financial times and so on and and with the barclays i mean it's a mad story oh, the, the thing about the telegraph debts is really the least least sort of stunning bit there was, there's a bit where one bit of the family put a bug in a room in the ritz hotel which they also own in order to record the other bit of the family in order to, you know, get some evidence against them or something. I mean, just insane stuff, which which would certainly make a great, uh, you know, uh, after series for sort of what what comes after succession. It's it's been a week of it's been a month of bluff calling, hasn't it? Because there was a there was a a view around the markets that the Barclay brothers were sort of playing hardball to force a renegotiation, a restructuring of the debt and. Lloyd's basically called their bluff and said, fine, we'll, we'll take the assets. Yeah. Um, and and which, which kind of mirrors what's been going on with Sunak and, and Johnson, because Johnson is someone who just bluffs habitually. And once you work that out, mm. you just call him every time because you know he's got a, a two and a seven. I'm also reminded of a, a, the amazing line from Succession where the Brian Cox character says to his children, I love you, but you're not serious people. And and this is playing out basically with that younger generation in the Barclay family. And and the original Barclay brothers, these slightly old identical twins, were what everyone thought of them were clearly excellent businessmen. And and it, it seems quite possible that the younger generation don't quite have it. Mm. Now, one of the Telegraph's financial advisors has said the highest bidder might not be the best bidder. Uh, there seemed to be an early assumption, a giddiness, that a change of ownership might remove the Barclays' toxic influence, in which I shared, I confess. But has much thought been given to what might replace it? I mean, I I would imagine, because basically you can't really make money from a newspaper. I, I know that, you know, that the shift to, to an online digital method is, is, is well underway, but it still has to be someone who's willing to lose money and therefore... It's going to be someone who's got a heavy political agenda, and I would—I feel slightly sort of deadened by this thought. But I think the idea of some sort of progressive person turning the Telegraph back into a sensible newspaper, albeit a right-leaning one—I I think that's pipe dream. I'm, you know, there are all, all the kind of dark money that lines up behind things like GB News, 
I imagine, would look at the Telegraph and think, oh, that'd be good. Yeah, I wouldn't mind one of those. Mm. Matt, the Spectator would be cheaper on its own. It's a billionaire's wet dream, according to one Telegraph staffer. Could it go to a sort of Musk-esque egotist? I think Elon Musk would, would love it if he knew anything about British politics. He, he would, knew anything about anything. Well, quite. He would go for it. I feel like maybe even just a consortium of all the people who've got a blue tick on Twitter. Because it feels like... <laughs> Because like those those are the people who are very much catered for by that audience. Um, yeah, it's the thing about the Spectator is it is a uh, magazine I do read sometimes. It has some good writers um, and good pieces, but it does feel like whenever I say that, I feel like I'm saying I read Playboy for the articles. You know, it's that kind of you have to ignore all the stuff around it yeah. and sort of put go oh, don't like that. But this is quite a good piece. But, I have yeah. to say, I was a little bit in that camp, and then you know. Tacky started churning out pieces yeah. saying, Golden Dawn, are they really so bad? And I thought, no, you know what? I'm yeah, yeah. not going to get another penny of my fucking money. Oh, no, I'm not saying I pay for it. <laughs> yeah. I just look online. Um, the Express and the Mail may have shouted loudest, but the Telegraph was arguably the most influential proponent of Brexit. I think both in duration and in influence. Does this story matter less now its ultimate goal? has been achieved or is ongoing support for Brexit now that the country seems to be turning against it even more crucial do you think I think the thing about the Telegraph is I've been thinking about it today it's such an established brand it's been around for so long and even if you don't know anything about newspapers you've heard of the Telegraph but it feels like now it's one of those old shops that has had something else sort of put inside like when the original HMV became an American candy store and mm. that's what we've got we've got the sort of branding of the Daily Telegraph but actually inside it's just nutters and it, and I think that's what's happened with it and I, I, I suppose that that has slowly become clearer and clearer over the years with Brexit and they has it has become that has been their driving force and I guess Boris Johnson who has written for them for so long has become their driving force I guess with Johnson out of the House, is he going to end up becoming the driving force of the Telegraph again? I don't know. Maybe. Um, Eleni, on this podcast, we may laugh at the Telegraph's misfortune, and we have, and and we do, and we will. Um, But is it bad news for the rest of the media that even a paper with such rich backing can ultimately be at so much risk so quickly? Yes, absolutely. I think it's bad news, you know, and the fact that it's difficult to make newspaper as profitable is bad news. Um, I mean, any, any, you know, any loss of such a major publication, I think, you know, just in the plurality of voices, and mm. obviously in the UK, the media landscape is is right wing generally, or by majority, but still, um, I think absolutely, like, we, I, I wouldn't celebrate journalists being put at risk, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, we don't know, maybe somebody will, you know. I mean, the Telegraph has turned a profit I, I guess, uh, in yes, recent that's years, true. thanks to sort of big push into digital news a subscription models and yeah online I mean, critics would argue it has done that at the expense of journalistic values because you know i i've been in this country long enough to remember actually reading the telegraph to find out the sort of you know the sane rational mm. right-wing point of view mm. um and it's not that anymore is that a sign of the times? Does the need for sort of tribal support and virality mean that a newspaper of record model mm. is basically just no longer viable? You have to pick a side and really go for it. It's uh, it's a good question. I mean, I don't know. The Times does well, um, and in, within News UK, according to their accounts, you know, it's 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 very successful. So um, 
it's an open question. I guess any successful newspaper needs to have a mission and a purpose. The Telegraph, uh, Brexit, as you say, it was so influential in that. Um, it's really the voice as well. It's the kind of paper of choice for Tory members, you know, and and the Spectator as well is very influential. Those two publications, when it comes to Tory members, that mm. those are the ones that they read. Mm. So I think that's very significant. Um, and the Tories and are, politicians, I think, and politicians absolutely, um, particularly kind of the right of the Tory Party. Um, so I guess the thing I would question is, I mean, they've chosen. I mean, you'll have seen they've chosen sort of anti-lockdown sentiment as uh, was their kind of driving um, thing in recent months. Um, they, That's they, quite weird, isn't it? Well, yeah, kind well, of... I mean- you know, I, I just question whether that's something that a lot of people agree with. I don't know, maybe its readership does, but it's 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 quite different from Brexit, for example, where, you know, they, 52% of people mm. voted for it in that referendum. Lockdown scepticism feels like more of a, a kind of risky thing to go with. And I just wonder whether that's... Um, yeah, it yeah. feels like a narrow niche, doesn't it? Yeah. Right, to the whole panel, fun time. Whom would we like to see by The Telegraph? A consortium fronted by Greta Thunberg and Marcus Rashford. I give you absolute power to make your fantasy happen. Arthur. Um, well, perhaps I'm going to be a bit boring, but because we, we, we talk of... No, cut. <laughs> no, go on. All right. No, the, we, we talk about how um, newspapers can't make money. But of course, there is a new newspaper called The New European, which got founded and has done really well and has made money. And um, so they've showed it can be done and and they have long articles about interesting things. And one of the things that the Telegraph will always tell you is that, you know, we, we like Europe. We just don't like the EU. So what, perhaps the new European, the team behind the new European could bring the Telegraph back into its um, you know, civilized <laughs> relationship with Europe. I like the thought of that. How about you, Matt? I've got two ideas. I think the first one is it should be bought by TikTok. Uh, just change okay. every article into a 60 second video <laughs> and just see their readers have to deal with that that would be fun but also I think from also technologically speaking I think maybe it should be bought by um, the guys who do chat GPT and just make it the first ever AI generated newspaper because all you need to do is feed it like a diet of war films a few years of yeah, public just get school. it to read every Alistair Heath yeah um, all, the, all the works of Johnson, um, public school magazines, all this kind of stuff. And it would just spew out right-wing stuff for the rest of time. And the thing about AI is it's not good at sort of predicting the future, but it's very good at replicating, sort of doing pastiches of the past. And that seems to be perfect. That is the telegraph, isn't it? That's it. it? (laughs) The woke mind virus (laughs) Ramona elite is destroying Britain, and you don't even know it. Um, How about you, Ellen? I've got two answers as well. Okay. Um, well, the first is just, I mean, we've had it suggested, but a consortium led by Boris Johnson. I think that would be an amazing, <laughs> <laughs> amazing new twist in British politics where he uses this newspaper to kind of wage a war against the British United government and like tries mm. to, to promote. <laughs> I mean, it would make for lots of right yeah, things yeah. for me to write about. The reason I'm groaning is because that's quite plausible. It's probably, yeah, it's, yeah, quite uh, but really, I, um, I want to make a pitch for a political you know, we're, we're a really successful digital publication expanding in the UK. You know, why not? Maybe we can. Please. <laughs> maybe we Please can buy the Telegraph. I mean, really, save us. Have you just given away a rumour that will I shock <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if I had access to that kind of... <laughs> it's a pitch. It's a pitch to the... <laughs> the we've reached class. the end of the show. Which means it's time for escape routes. What delightful baubles from outside the world of politics have our panel been enjoying this week? Arthur. 
Yeah, well, so a, a couple of months ago, I saw a review of an Iranian film, which looked amazing, called Law of Tehran, but I couldn't obviously see how to watch it. And it's now popped up on iPlayer. And it is amazing. It's so, I mean, the Iranian film industry is so fascinating, the way that they keep producing these films that seem allowed to be made and show the country in quite a critical light. Um, and this film is is kind of like a really gritty gangster sort of police drama about the, the drug scene in Iran, which of course is a huge issue in that country. Uh, quite hard to watch, but but it's, it's a really, really good movie. And it's there on iPlayer for anyone to see. Sounds good. How about you, Matt? I've been very much enjoying the third series of I Think You Should Leave with uh, Tim Robinson on Netflix, which is a sketch show. Um, and I'd never come across him before, but I think he's done quite a lot of stuff in America. And I just love it because it's, it's very, it's, A, it's a very apposite title for politics at the moment because everyone is leaving. Um, and also he's just so good at producing sketches with men who are at sort of at odds with the world, people who make one mistake and then just continually double down on it and double down on it and double down. And he feels like the best sort of rage <laughs> comedy since you know, something like Faulty Towers or something. And also, as a comedian, I'm always impressed by any sort of sketch or something that surprises me, and it continually surprises me. I'm always trying to work out what's going to happen next, and every sketch goes in a different direction. It's Some are very surreal, some are almost kind of naturalistic, um, and they're very short episodes, so it doesn't outlast its welcome. That sounds terrific. How about you, Lenny? Um, so I very kind of belatedly discovered Donna Tart, the author. Mm. I read a gold, uh, The Goldfinch. I've just finished it and it's amazing. And I I want to buy um, The Secret History, which is her other famous book to read on the beach this summer. Uh, but oh. it's like really kind of the perfect, it's a kind of real page turner, like literary page turner. Um, so you can kind of feel intellectual uh, while you're reading it. But really, it's just like you, you know, it really grips you. So the best kind, of, yeah. <laughs> best kind of intellectual. Um, I, I just want to add my voice to Dorian's recommendation last week of Poker Face, because based on his recommendation, I dived into it. And it is. It really is one of the best things I've seen. and I mean, it restored my faith after a slight depression when succession ended, mm. when I thought, oh, God, it's all downhill from downhill from here. Um, it really is. Every episode is a work of art. The setup is incredibly simple. It involves basically a woman played by Natasha Lyonne, who is just so incredibly charismatic from Russian Doll um, and, and Orange is the New Black. I mean, she could do anything and she's just funny. She's got funny bones. Um, and and the, the setup is that she's someone who has an innate instinct to unfailingly know when someone tells a lie. Every episode is an art house film and an episode of Murder She Wrote at the same time. I can't explain it any better. Wow. And and just the guests are amazing. I mean, I just watched an episode um, that is to do with a murder at a dinner theatre where Ellen Barkin is playing the sort of washed-up uh, great actress that's now doing dinner theatre. And it's, it's just extraordinary. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's on Sky and Now TV. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thanks to Matt Green. Thank you. To Arthur Snell. Thanks for having me. And to our guest, Eleni Correa. Thanks very much. In the meantime, here's a theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. See you next time. Good news. 
News, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Oh God, What Now is presented by Alex Andre with Matt Green and Arthur Snell. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Thank you.